0: Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and I'm editor-in-chief of The Cut. On this show, I get to talk to people that we love and admire, or some that we just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path and what maybe have gotten in their way, and how they brought others along now that they've arrived. Jen Statsky has been writing her way through the industry punchline by punchline. The comedy writer, producer, and showrunner got her start writing on the late-night scene and soon went to write for shows like Parks and Rec, Broad City, and The Good Place. Most recently, she co-created the show Hacks on HBO Max with a few of her friends, which is about a relationship between a legendary stand-up comedian and a young comedy writer who pushes her outside of her comfort zone. The show snagged a few Emmys and a slew of awards this season, and I'm personally very excited because it's been renewed for season three. We talked to Jen about her start in the industry, how she went on to create hacks, and how women are portrayed in media. Thank you so much for joining us,
1: Jen. Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: So this show is actually called In Her Shoes. So I have okay. to ask because I'm curious, what kind of shoes you have on now, or like what are yeah. your favorite shoes
1: and, and any story behind your favorite pair? Oh, that's a great well, it's a great question because I'm a huge sneaker head. So Ooh, I do. Which which I know isn't necessarily um what maybe you meant by shoes? Oh no, I love sneakers. We're good. Okay, yeah. cool. I've been really into what I'm wearing right now. What I've been really into are my white Adidas Continental 80s. Do you know? Do you know those are good? Going to make, like Google these. Yeah, they're a good. Really basic, everyday kind of shoe that goes with a ton. But like, still oh yes, look, I do know these. Yeah, still look pretty good. So that's that's what I'm into right now. Yeah. <laughs> So tell us about your start in the
0: industry, you know, what was that like and and what was the moment that you knew that you wanted to really pursue comedy?
1: Yeah, I think that growing up I I didn't know really that comedy writing was the thing I wanted to do. I didn't even really know that that's what was a job, but looking back now I realized that I I did know at a very young age. I watched a lot of TV growing up and I became obsessed with the kind of like old sitcoms like watching Nick at night, like the Dick Van Dyke show, Mary Tyler Moore show is like a massive influence on me. And so I loved shows like that. I didn't realize like there were people writing those lines for them. But then as I grew up I, I like I was into writing more than anything else. I, like, wrote for my school newspaper and then kind of just, like, merged together. I came to NYU in 2004, and they had a really good film and TV program. And then that kind of led to my first job in the industry, which was uh, I was a, like, freelance headline writer for The Onion, which was a satirical newspaper in New York. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. And uh, then... The Onion was doing web videos at the time and I was I was an intern there and then they got uh, offered to do shows for Comedy Central and IFC, two shows, and I became an assistant there. And so being an assistant on those two shows were kind of like my first industry job.
0: I know that Twitter kind of played an influential role also in your start, though. So what mm-hmm. was that like as being a writer and as someone reached out to you um, from late night? And, and tell me about that interaction.
1: Yeah, we. Um, so basically I was an assistant. And as I was working doing that, it, Twitter at the time was popular for people who were just writing like one-liner jokes. And that was something that I had, you know, Always kind of had an inclination towards, and I was doing it with writing headlines for The Onion. So I just started on Twitter and like, I think I joined in 2009, 2009, 2010, like just writing stupid little jokes. You know, Twitter was a a different place than it is now. Oh, that that. was going to be my next question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't fully kind of like the hellscape that it is now. So it was still a place where you could go and like write dumb little jokes and it was cool like it, i think for a little while it like became a little bit more of a democratized process in that like anyone could be writing jokes from anywhere that you didn't have to have any connection to the industry and someone could see it and be like hey this person's like really funny we should ask them for a sample for me what happened was i was working as an assistant i was also writing yeah just silly little twitter jokes uh, at the same time and then when my job as an assistant ended, I said, "Okay, this was all in New York." And I said, "I want to be a TV writer. I feel like I got to go to LA. That's where it's it's kind of happening. If you want to write television, I'm gonna pack up all of my stuff. You know, I'd lived in New York since 2004, so it'd been like seven years. Um, pack up my entire apartment. I'm gonna move across the country to LA. This is January of 2011, and then." Like a month later, I get a DM from 80 Miles, who was the head writer of Late Night with Jimmy Fallon at the time, saying, Hey, I really, you know, someone sent me your jokes on Twitter. They're really funny. Do you want to submit a packet to be a writer on our show? I said, Sure, did it long story short, got the job, had to move back across the country, back to New York <laughs> <laughs> about two and a half months later. But yeah, so Twitter was, was a really big part of how I got, how I got that job. And like, honestly, how I kind of got my next job because Mike Sure, creator of, of course, Parks and Recreation and The Good Place, um, he also had followed me on Twitter and saw, you know, like, just jokes I was writing and I guess thought I was funny. And he kept me in mind for Parks and Rec. So that then happened a little while later that way too. Yeah. How
0: do you feel like social media is different though? Because I, I mean, I, I look especially Twitter, but I don't even have a, I don't have a Twitter anymore because I feel mm-hmm. like Twitter very quickly became just too ratchet for me. I just feel yeah. <laughs> like there's too many opinions. It's too much.
1: Too ratchet is an excellent way to describe Twitter. That's that's good. It's really uh, how I feel. Yeah. But yeah. How do,
0: I mean, it's obviously been formative in your life, but how do you yeah. find your relationship has shifted with social media I, over time.
1: Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't really enjoy Twitter anymore. I kind of use it for, honestly, now just to kind of like promote things about hacks. But I'm trying to actively do spend less and less time on it because it is – like you said it's tough in some ways it's good because i think the change in twitter started happening when people became a little more aware about the world and became more active politically and so it turned into a i guess the trump era kind of reoriented people to like wanting to discuss that and and you know use social media as a tool of activism that way so like in some ways i'm like well Maybe that's good. Maybe the push towards, you know, being more aware of social issues on a platform is good rather than just jokes. But then also kind of like you're saying, there it also became a tool of like kind of very intense contrarian takes <laughs> and like people trying to take each other down for their takes. It, it became a pretty like not nuanced medium. I think, you know, it's just kind of someone says something and then someone attacks them for that. And it, I don't know, it, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel great anymore. I actually think I, in a perfect world would not have a Twitter account anymore. Um, so that is kind of my evolution <laughs> from <laughs> do which you is- at all?
0: like find new talent though on Twitter? Just how, I mean, just how I you do, have I do, definitely, definitely.
1: I do. Like, we, I, that's the other reason I don't want to get off now, actually, as someone who now can, you know, hire people for the show or find younger writers to like develop stuff with. I do follow people on Twitter and like there are some people who make me laugh so much and I'm like, who is it? I don't know who this is. And like, it is a really good tool. I still think that way to find people, not just like mindlessly scrolling it. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, when you were starting in the
0: writer's room, did you find a lot of support? Like what were what were the pros and cons and, and what was that experience like, you know, to be heard and to find your way as a, a female comedy writer?
1: Yeah. Um, it was, it was tough. I mean, it, tough, not in that anyone like specifically went out another way to make it tough, which I'm lucky because that is many people's stories. Like, I don't think that happened. But when I joined the staff of Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, like, this is 2011. And it was still kind of the time when I think I was one of two female writers in a staff of like 17, you know, and specifically, I was like a monologue writer. And that so that was my team. And that's like, I think five or six writers. And I was the only woman on that. And eventually that changed some very, you know, smart, funny women got hired, but that in and of itself is like kind of, I look around now and I, I hope that we're getting to a point where when I look at people's writing staffs or certainly my own, like you're not coming to a thing where it's like, oh, there's <laughs> there's 16 men and one woman. Like, it, like yeah, hopefully yeah. we're moving away from that. But I think just the sheer, you know, fact that I was the only woman or was one of two was really like, it was scary. It was weird. It, w- it was, you would inherently feel a little bit Uh, siloed that way because there's not someone you can turn to who will have closer to your experience. So that was a hard piece of it. And then even just on top of that, regardless of, of gender, who else was there, like I was just, I think when you get hired to do your quote unquote dream job or a creative thing, I was under the very foolish impression when I was 25 years old and got hired there that the second I got hired to be a professional writer, all of my like insecurities would like flutter away and I'd be good for the rest of my life. And the truth is, is like, it was it was the opposite. Like I'd never been more insecure about my own ability than when I like got thrown into this like kind of pressure cooker environment because it was pretty you know competitive and everybody was like you know nice and pleasant, but it was very like you're putting on a show five days a week, and it, it was like really intense. I was in late night, like two years, basically 2011 and 2013. And it was super challenging. It was like a really hard two years, like that first learning how to be a professional working writer. Um, there was like a big learning curve for me. Yeah.
0: So in learning how to be a professional late night writer and then transitioning to writing for television shows and comedies and all of that, has your process changed what has you know evolved
1: over time i think what it what has been helpful and what continues to be the the challenge of it is like not having a little bit of separation from the work like not saying i am only my job. I am only this work, which is really hard because especially now, you know, I co-created a show that's like incredibly personal, um, Mm -hmm. and is very like much so exactly the show I want to make along with Paul Dunn's and the chain yellow. I have this fantasy sometimes of a job that I don't feel so tied to my personal self-worth um, and that's really been the challenge, I think, of my career. Just for me personally, is trying to find my own self worth and how I feel about myself, independent of how the work is received or how the work is going. And I'm getting there. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's uh, it's all figured out quite yet. But I think you know, talking to other creative people like that is it's something we all struggle with. It's really hard when it's such a personal thing.
0: There's a, um, an older article in The New Yorker by Toni Morrison, and she talks about this, and I often read it because it is about the t- distinction between separating your identity from work and how you are the person that you are, not the work that you do.
1: Oh, wow. Please, please. I'm in desperate need of that. Send it over <laughs> Toni Morrison makes
0: everything better.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> what, what am I doing? Why have I not been listening to Toni Morrison on this exact <laughs> topic? I probably could have figured it out many years ago
0: i will share it with you later
1: Please. um but let's talk about hacks
0: um yeah. obviously co-creator i mean what even crossed your mind when the show got greenlit and and <laughs> what is it like to actually get a show you know off the ground in those early days
1: we were incredibly excited it also for all time will be a uh, kind of a twisted weird experience of it getting Picked up off the ground because it it got picked up in like April 2020 <laughs> in the depths of a of a global pandemic. So it was a weird, interesting time in the world for everyone. But as far as just the show, I mean, we were so we were so excited. Like we had come up with the idea in 2015. Um, it was something the three of us, Lucia, Paul, and I had had talked about a lot. And the reason we talked about it a lot and I've said this before is like we had one of those experiences where you kind of know an idea is worth pursuing, which is that we had the idea in 2015 and then it kept like coming back up for all of us. Like we kept thinking of like little new character details or ideas or things we wanted to put in and that made us realize like, oh, this feels like this is fertile ground. It feels like there's something here that is worth exploring. Um, And so you know by the time 2020 rolled around 2019 is when we pitched it we were supposed to shoot a pilot and then hbo max very very um helpfully said hey we don't know what the world is right now we don't know when we'll be able to go back in a production but why don't you the one thing you guys can do you know from home is like write the show and so we're going to pick you up and pick you up to series and and have you write the show write the whole first season which was amazing. Almost every episode that you see in season one is something we had thought of in the like few years before, not in like the months before. So it was a very nice experience of being able to finally put into action all these ideas we had talked about for so long. And, you know, I think, of course, the the fear comes in, at least for me, of like, oh no, here's my shot. I hope, I hope I don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, you've gone, though, from writer to producer to showrunner. So what has that journey been like to, you know, not have, you know, that negative, you know, self-talk that you can't do it or, you know, not have that imposter syndrome and get there?
1: Well, it's funny because I do have it. (laughs) You just, uh, I guess, quiet it, you know, You, you, you live with it and you have it next to you on the journey as you go along. It doesn't ever fully go away in my experience at least. Um, But that's the thing is like, you don't try to get rid of it. And I think I used to try to like really like fight and claw to like, be like, I gotta completely get this out of my brain and like, and now I'm a little bit like, no, it'll be like next to me on this journey and that's okay. And the trick is just to make sure it doesn't ever like stop you from doing anything. And I think the other thing I've learned, and I learned this very much so, in like coming up in the Parks and Rec room and the Good Place room with Mike Sure, is like you're not. I think like when you start thinking about it that you're like alone doing it, it's way easier to have those insecurities and doubts creep in and the imposter syndrome because it's like it's all on me. And the truth is, it's never on you. Even you know, certainly not in my case because I created the show with two other people. But like even if you create a show alone, like TV is such a and so many artistic endeavors are like such a collaborative process and so i think i learned from make sure that like you lean on people and you like happily and gleefully invite their collaboration and their process and their artistic vision into yours and it makes it infinitely better. And I find that in like leaning into that collaboration, you also are able to quiet that imposter syndrome because it's not about, it kind of can in the best version of it stop being about your ego. It's not about like just you doing this and your ability to do it. It's about you doing it together with other people.
0: right? I mean, what out of those, you know, the roles that you've had in in transitioning from writer to producer to showrunner, what role have you felt strongest or most confident in or just enjoyed the most
1: or the least? It's a good question. I, I really like producing, actually. There's something about writing. I obviously like writing in some way. I like having written the famous, famous thing about writing. I don't like writing. I like having written. Um. And I like writing in a group. I like writing with Paul and I like writing with our writer's room and like getting to, you know, my favorite thing is when other writers on the show come up with a joke that is like amazing and so funny. And I'm like, oh, in a million years, I would have never thought of that. And now it's in the Mm -hmm. show. You know, like I love that. I really, really do. But writing is, there is an unknown quality to it that is still really challenging to me. You know, when you're like, I think this is the right story to tell. I think this is the right thing. You know, but like I, sometimes you just know. You're like, that's amazing. And some other times you're like, I hope this works. I, I I think it works. Like you don't know necessarily maybe till you get it on its feet on the day unsaid. Or I don't know. That writing because there's so many different options, sometimes it's a little bit more like, well, this is just the option we're choosing and maybe someone else would make a different story move here, but this is what we're doing and and it feels right for the characters, so let's do it, but, but we don't know. Or, or like you never fully know. But right. whereas producing, you know, and by producing I mean the like, you know, I was a producer on Good Place and other shows and so that meant like I was on set, you know, for my episodes and other episodes and kind of working with the actors and stuff. And that was, that was really fun. But kind of what I really mean, executive producing for this show, for Hacks, for my own show, what I've really enjoyed is kind of the nitty gritty. There's a more kind of cut and dry, like, Oh, we found this location. It's amazing! Like this location would be amazing. Can we get it? Yes, we can. You know, like there's right. there's concrete problems and concrete answers in producing, and it's super hard. It's not always, it's not easy. You know, so I, I've enjoyed that, and and kind of have gotten, I think, better at it as as I've gone along. Hopefully.
0: I'm curious as far as writing goes, though, I mean, how do you draw the line of, you know, personal experiences that you do want to share or, you know, kind of get inspiration from? Or is there a specific moment from Hacks that like personally <laughs> aligns with you that you're like this, you know, actually feels like it was me and, and, and yeah. in, in, in a sort of way?
1: I think, like, for me, it's all on the table. I kind of used to be like, no, I need to, like, save that thing for one day, you know? Like, And now it's like, what am I... I don't know, the the earth could explode tomorrow, so maybe I'll put in this stupid joke or whatever, you know? Like, it's a little bit like everything is up for grabs if it makes sense for the story or for the character, at least for me. And, like, in Hacks, there's so much stuff... In, in various characters that is me or that is Paul or that is Lucia, like from our own personal lives or, you know, things we've experienced or our own personal characteristics. Um, and so like it, it's a little bit like, you know, all, all on the table to be to be taken if it makes sense for hacks or for something else. Um, and yeah, there, there's like countless things in hacks that are from me or about me or and same Like with Paul or Lucia, I would say, I would say the one that people are most saddened by. I'll give you this: is the fact that Ava not being able to swim does come from me. Um, oh no, <laughs> no, it's okay. I can I can doggy paddle, and then when I tell people that I can doggy paddle, they they breathe a sigh of relief. They feel a little bit better. Um, but yeah, I never, I never took, I never was taught how to swim as a kid, and never took lessons, and so I was always a little, um, little skittish around, around around the ocean. More pool pools, I'm okay with as long as it's not too deep. Let's not get crazy with how deep it is. But right, yeah. pools, I'm I feel okay the same with. Way, though, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the ocean is terrifying to me. I mean, it's vast. We don't we don't know. It's what's vast. We there, don't know so. what's going on. We don't know what's going on. And the way It's really the. You know what? It's the waves. The waves are what get me. Those things are big. They're powerful. If the, if it, calm ocean waters, no problem. Once a once the waves start coming, um, I'm it's losing over. it. I'm freaking out. I'm <laughs> clutching clutching my my life raft.
0: I mean, you've talked about an, an a lot as far as television writing. Or comedy or dramas but I think especially in you know how women have been written in TV and I think um, there's obviously so many tropes and stereotypes of you know the sitcom wife with no real problems or flaws or you know just feels very vapid or um, it feels like there's also been an overcorrection of that on a lot of other shows so Mm -hmm. how do you find the sweet spot and navigate you know writing about women in TV now?
1: I think we just try to like make it feel like real i don't know if you make it feel true to life like make it feel connected to something real that that resonates for us and then hopefully we know it resonates for other people you know like on broad city like that was such a thing that you know as a writer for the show i was incredibly proud of and also just like as a fan of the show i think is the most lovely thing about it is that as, as crazy as that show could get, the thing at the core of that show that is, you know, this has been well covered, but the thing in the core of that show that is so lovely is that it is about this friendship between two women that I don't think had been, I mean, yes, it had been on TV. I don't mean to make it sound like we did something no one had ever done, but to your point, there were thousands and thousands of shows about women who were the wives who we didn't get to see their inner lives. And part of those inner lives that are so important are these like friendships and these friendships with other women. And so the thing about Broad City that I always really loved and I felt was the reason when people came up and told me how much they loved it or I'd be with Abin Alana and people would tell them how much they they. Love didn't it like meant the world to them is that people saw themselves in these characters and they saw themselves in this friendship. Um, this kind of like, you know, romantic friendship. There's a very specific type of female friendship that is like really romantic and lovely, and that's like very important part of um growing up and how you get through the world. And I don't know that it had been, at least for me, I hadn't fully seen it reflected on screen in a way that um, I felt resonated with that was true to my relationships because that was another thing too. Like you said, there's a sitcom life and then there's also like so many instances where women were not were pitted against each other and not able to show these like deep, meaningful kind of like really like singular important in their in their lives relationships that I knew to be true from my life and my other friends' lives. And so to answer your question, like I think what it is is just trying to write female characters that reflect my experience as a woman in the world and what I know my friends and other women, I know what their experiences are. And so for Broad City, it was showing a friendship like that. And for hacks, it is trying to make these women feel real, feel, feel like as, as silly and crazy as the stories can get at the heart of it there, they feel like, you know, they had something in them emotionally resonates with you as you're watching that is like, I have felt that before, or, or that is a behavior I do, or, you know, some, something that feels real and truthful that you're connecting to while you watch um, and so that has been kind of like the the guiding light for for how to write characters like that to me. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, I think specifically talking about Ava and Deb, um, there's obviously a generational difference. I find them them both to be have a lot of parallels and. I love the the cynicism that I think they both have, but was it important for you to tease out their differences and like their different experiences throughout the show? and, And why was that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, it was very much baked into the DNA of the show that when they meet, they have very different views on comedy, but also just the world in general. And that part of the, the, you know, engine of the show was how do they come together and how do they bond over these things and how do they clash over these things and and butt heads and and then as they butt heads these cracks form and then each other seeps into the other and so that was very much so from the beginning um how the show was designed and it was really important to to make sure we were Showing that and also showing it in a way where, like, it's not that one of them was always right and the other was always wrong. It was that they were each coming to the table with perspectives that were worth um, hearing and maybe each could benefit from the other's perspective. Speaking of of writing female characters, it was an interesting experience because it was—the design of the show was that when Ava is hired— she is someone who looks down on the the type of comedy that Deborah Vance does in her career and doesn't have a full appreciation for her and is is entitled in that way. And the you know, the very intentional journey of the show is is her realizing throughout season one and season two as well like oh, the things that I was placing a premium on and the things that I thought mattered don't and now she gains appreciation for this woman and and what she's done and so it was a funny experience because i think there was like a really you know like the tolerance people have for like a young entitled woman on screen is i think low which is fine you know like i i can somewhat understand but like it also is that kind of the debate we've had you know a lot as we talk about you know, TV and movies and what what female characters are allowed to do that that male characters get to do. Like, I don't know that a male character doing with the same attitude in POV would have I don't know, would would be as hard to to take in, um, which is just an interesting phenomenon that I've noticed. And I'm not speaking just about hacks, I'm speaking kind of broadly about TV and, and media in general.
0: I agree. I mean I think it's a you definitely see there there's a shorter runway given to women and a, a, definitely a smaller tolerance level 100%.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the the i the, the most crazy example to me will always be Breaking Bad with Skylar <laughs> and the like hate that she got uh was just kind of crazy based on if you're i don't know. It's just an interesting it's an interesting uh phenomenon. Yeah.
0: I mean specifically though with with Deb's storyline um I know that you did a lot of research on women facing hardships in the industry and and why do you think it's been you know what did you learn through that research or what did you put into the writing of why you think it's historically been so hard for women in the industry to call out when they've been wronged even now
1: Yeah. Yeah, we did so much research on on so many people, whether, you know, Phyllis Stiller, Elaine May, Joan Rivers, uh, Lucille Ball, like so many of these women, we, we really kind of dug into their past. And I think the thing that like kept coming up to me that was so wild was I would keep reading about things where I was like, oh, if that happened to me, I would have quit. And if that happened to me, I would have quit. Like these women had so many things happen to them that they just had to put up with and keep going that like you never heard about. And, and you know, like, oh, a business manager stole from them. And then 10 years later, another business manager stole from them. Or, you know, there's a story that I think about all the time, which is not about a woman. We research it actually came from a woman in our um writer's room there's a there's a woman janice hirsch who um lovely very very funny wonderful woman um in her late 60s or early 70s who we we asked to you know consult on hack season one because we really you know as much as we could research we knew that we are you know writing from the perspective of people in their 30s we're not A woman Jean's age. And so we wanted to make sure we were reflecting the experience as authentically as possible. And one of the stories Janice Hirsch told, and she has written about this, I think, for The Hollywood Reporter now, in the wake of the Me Too era, she wrote an article about this, is that she was a writer on a show. And in the writer's room one day, a, a guy took out his penis and put it on her shoulder as like a bit in the writer's room, as a very funny bit in the writer's room. And then she just Where has- HR? A, oh, God. Who, who absolutely, yeah, no HR in sight. And then the next day she was fired. She was let go from the show. And I bring this up to say, like, as we researched these women, there were hundreds and hundreds of these stories that, yeah. uh, and, you know, the, the Me Too movement brought this out tenfold in our culture of like, Oh my gosh, she went through that and then that and then that. And so we just kept like a punching bag and hit with these stories and being like shocked at what these women had to deal with. And so <clears throat> I think that was really like something we tried to put into the Deborah Vance character and something that Gene Smart plays so beautifully is this like Teflon nature that they had to build up. And you kind of said like, why couldn't they tell these stories? It's like, no one wanted to hear them. Like you either fit into a box and you were you did the comedy you were, quote-unquote, like, allowed to, or you, like, kind of had to go away. Like, they're, they're, that's very much so Deborah's story. She she is a victim of being maligned um, by her ex-husband and this story being told about her, which was very much so, you know, we w- wanted to reflect this story of, like, the, quote-unquote, crazy woman and then have society, as we look back, go like, oh, wait, that woman wasn't crazy. Actually, the way we treated her was quite crazy. Exactly. Um, and so we wanted to reflect that in Deborah's experience, and and in the character that she is someone who's had that journey and had that um, story. And and yeah, we the just in terms of what women could say and talk about, like that that was what really struck me as like, oh, these women had these things happen to them, and they just had to deal with them, and if they tried to speak up about it, nobody wanted to hear it or their career would be ruined. And it's just um, unbelievable. It's still like, you know, I, I think we're inching slowly towards something about how to reckon with this, but I also, you know, worry about how, how I don't know, how, Will do we maintain on the correct trajectory with this or does there be some kind of backlash? Like, you know... It's interesting. Like we, when we do press for this show, we get we get asked about cancel culture like constantly, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's because the way that Ava comes into working for Deborah is like you know a little bit connected to that. But but we actually really never meant for the show to to be a, a statement on cancel culture. It's actually not something we are um, interested in in exploring, partially because the whole story of the show is about what's been happening to women for decades and decades. And like, the truth is, is like Monica Lewinsky was canceled. And Winona Ryder, when she shoplifted, was canceled. And Janet Jackson was canceled. And only when, only when like it started happening to honestly, in my opinion, powerful men, did we need to put like a term on it and say like, this is cancel culture. This has gone too far. You know, it's like, I don't even like to use the term anymore because it's been so weaponized by, you know, people in bad faith. But, yeah. the, you know, it's like, uh, we're not really interested in comment on, on whatever this modern day phenomenon is because it's like, the truth is they're trying to tell the story of what's been happening to women for decades and decades and decades and no one cared to put any movement around it and say, right. this has gone too far, you know?
0: Right. But I guess in in knowing and, and seeing, you know, Firsthand in writing about all of those stories that no one cared about for decades, I think of you know the phenomenon of people um, not understanding how Britney Spears was so not in control of her own yep. life, and really, yeah. you know, I think um, just a, a like complete abuse of power and her conservatorship that we've written a ton about on the cut, um, and I think there's obviously been this moment of reckoning for women, but it also feels like it like you were saying, it feels like it's been inching. I don't feel like there's been this huge amazing leap but i'm I'm curious of of what you feel like and now that you've heard all of those stories, but also I mean so many people to this day that I think you know would have you know that we've grown up and admired or loved um have had and are still dealing with so much um scrutiny and not really being in control of their own narrative
1: right. I think, yeah, I do feel like it's inching and I worry about just the way our, like, culture is and how, like, there's such, like, a, everything is so, like, um, I don't know, (laughs) divided, divided, this is not a smart way to say that. I'm like, uh, divided, yeah, uh, but, like, you know, even what, with whatever you think about Amber Heard, Johnny Depp, like, you know, but, but something's happening there where there is some kind of, uh, backlash to some sort of movement that is concerning. Um, And so I do think we're inching towards something, but I also worry about now how the narrative is turning. And I also just like, you know, regardless, like society can, as a culture, we can move forward and we can like correct our wrongs in some ways and we can treat women better today than we treated them yesterday. But the thing that is like, you know, painful to think about. And I think about it a lot. And I I do, I, I always say like the show, we did want to make a show that's like a tribute to women like Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller and all these women who like paved the way for honestly me to do what I do. But I do also hope that the show is like a tribute to the women who didn't get to tell their story because the path was so hard. Like even though we're inching forward as a society, like, there is a, there's a loss there. Like at the Me Too movement, I think, you know, one of the things I was so struck by was all these women who we said like, oh yeah, what happened to her? And the truth is what happened yeah. to her is something awful happened to her. And then she rightfully couldn't keep going, like stopped doing it. And so there is a collective loss of women's stories that is like very sad to me that like even though we can inch forward and do better, we still lost those women's stories because they they have those scars and maybe they didn't keep going or even if they kept going, that their career never took the path that it maybe should have because of this thing. And so that is like really, I think, a very sad thing to to reflect on. And so we also really want to honor with this show is say like that there, there's a, a whole world of women's stories that never got to be told because of the very difficult path they had to travel and we want to like honor that and kind of um I don't know uh, it's it sounds a funny word to associate with a comedy show but like mourn that a little bit um because it is something I think about quite a lot
0: no that was beautifully put um so I guess what what do we have to look forward to for season three? I mean, I think there's there's so much. Um, but and I, I know you can't like give us spoilers, but what are some big picture topics or things that you're just looking forward to unpacking?
1: Oh man. Um what can I say that isn't a spoiler? Um <laughs> the the broad thing I'll say that gives nothing away but is hopefully a tease is like when we pitch this show, we pitched a lot of ideas and we know kind of where it goes in seasons to follow it's very much so the redemption of deborah vance and you know her her kind of taking this great journey um and so i think you will continue to see deborah vance rise but also struggle with that rise and what does that mean and what what does that bring into what challenges does that bring into her life and also you know we ended season two with this um breakup. And, uh, I think the journey is like, how, how can these two women find their way back to each other?
0: I love Jean smart. So I'm very much looking forward to this. The best,
1: the absolute,
0: the absolute best. We are thankful for the miracle of hacks. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. This episode was produced by Taka Zen and Gavi Grossman. Our engineer is Brandon McFarlane, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by our excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you so much for listening.